Thank you for that reading, Pastor Dom, and thank you for humoring me while I have the kiddos up. Just remember the goal for that, of course, is to teach our kids, but also to just give a visual of what the way um, we do family Bible time in the Baker home. I'm not saying we do it perfectly, but um, I would say today was a pretty good representation of what Bible time in the Baker home <laughs> is like, especially the part about the lava, okay? That was... Uh, that's a, that's a, that, that, that was like taken right out of one of our scripts, I think. So, all right. Well, thank you, Pastor Dom, for reading. Let's pray, and then we'll jump right into our lesson today. Father, give us wisdom and understanding. Give us the ability to know your mind. And I pray that you would enable us to grow up into Christ in every way by speaking the truth one another to one another in love, by living out truth in love. Lord, remove from us all of those ways that are childish, immature, unstable. Take those out from our character. and Place us on the solid rock, which is your Son, Christ Jesus. For it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. There was one of our children, and I'm sure those of you who've had more than one kid have one of these types of kids, but I have a child, one child in particular, who loves, and I mean loves with a capital L, the water. Anytime we go to the ocean or the beach or the pool, this child is in the water for the maximum amount of time. Now, a few years ago, we were going to San Diego for a family vacation, and we were going to be on the beach for several days. And we know that in San Diego, the tides come in and out very quickly, and the waves can be very strong. And so we purchased for this child the brightest neon orange swimsuit that you can possibly imagine. Now, my daughter Charlotte is pointing at the culprit here. Why don't you go ahead and raise your hand? Yes, it's Peyton. <laughs> Peyton loves the water. Now, when he was a little younger, we didn't want to diminish his enjoyment of the water any by making sure he stayed closer to the shore. So we simply bought for him a swimsuit that looked a lot like a buoy. And every 20 minutes or so, I would say, where's Peyton? And I would scan my eyes, and there would be Peyton, a half a mile down the coastline, bobbing up and down in the water. And I would walk down there and say, oh, Peyton, come back, come back. And he'd go, oh, I totally didn't know I was that far away. It was no, he wasn't disobeying any. There were no rules. We just wanted to make sure he was safe. And so he would, instead of fighting against the current to go all the way back in front of where we were, he discovered that it was easier just to come to the shore and walk up the coastline to where we were, then go back out into the water and have fun. Well, he learned a lesson very quickly that we've all learned, haven't we? That when you're in the ocean, there are waves and currents that are far more powerful than you are. It doesn't matter how strong of a swimmer you are. It doesn't matter what flotation devices you have. You could even have a surfboard. Those waves are very strong. And if you just happen to get in the wrong storm, well, you could be many miles out to sea or you could be crushed by a breaker. There are strong forces that are out there that you have to be aware of and navigate if you want to enjoy a day at the beach. Well, in this world, there are forces. 
There are winds. There are waves. There are things that want to pick you up and take you out to sea. And in fact, we're told in this passage there are people, people, who want to take advantage of you. And they will lift you up on a current of emotions. And they will take you out and drown you to line their own pockets. This is what Paul says was happening in his day, and it happens in our own. So how do we keep ourselves from being driven? How do we keep ourselves from being tossed to and fro? How do we get stable? That's what Paul is going to answer for us today. Stability in the Christian life comes through perpetual and constant growth. The growing Christian, whether you've been walking with Christ for a few decades or just a few weeks, the growing Christian is insulated from those forces that will drive you and push you and ultimately claim you if you're not careful. Well, this is where Paul is taking us. Let's get a little context because it's been a couple of weeks since we were in Ephesians. We had a special speaker two weeks ago, and last week we we had our Easter services, of course. But let's just gather where we've been. Paul, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 4, has been telling us that God has given each one of us a gift. Now, he focuses on the teaching aspects of those gifts. He says there's been apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists and so forth. And then he goes on to tell us that teaching, teaching in particular, promotes something. It promotes unity. Now, that's contrary to what we might think. Sometimes we think teaching promotes disunity because it's in the doctrinal particulars that people argue over. No, no. It's quite the opposite. When the Word of God is opened and it's explained, remarkable unity takes hold among the people of God. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. And they come when it's spoken. And when Christ speaks through his, word, through his word, his sheep naturally gather around it. So teaching promotes great unity. It promotes maturity. And the body can grow into the fullness of Christ, spreading influence. Christ, not always, but generally speaking, is delighted to expand the boundaries of churches that are faithful to giving voice to his word. Teaching promotes all of these things. And then last, the Christian responsibility of teaching extends to everyone. Every one of you here is a teacher, or should be anyway. You should be teaching, which is the... And and this... Teaching gives us um, maturity. So you not only are the teachers, but you are the primary beneficiaries of your own teaching of each other. That's what Paul's going to discuss today. All of you are teachers, and all of you gain from our own teaching of ourselves. Does that make sense? We're supposed to teach ourselves, and we're the ones who get the benefits of it. That's what Paul says. 
Now let's get into the text today. We've got three main points. We've got danger, we've got stability, and then we've got Paul's picture. Danger, stability, and Paul's picture. What is the danger Paul is talking about here? Well, right here in verse 13, he's telling us that there is a great danger. I'm sorry, verse 14. He says, there's a danger in the Christian life in that way we would be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. He doesn't want us to be children anymore. Now, by children, I don't think he's meaning anything necessarily negative. When I think about children who are easily influenced, I think of a kid who's big-hearted but naive. He wants to do somebody good, but doesn't realize that the person he's about to do good for is really trying to take advantage of him. Or this child is empathetic, but undiscerning. There's a need that wants to be met, and this child wants to help and meet, but doesn't really understand that the person that's taking from them is just taking from them, taking advantage of their empathy. They're, they're playing off of their emotions. Or a child who is eager but unaware. This happens doctrinally, of course. There's an eagerness to know the truth. Or there's a preacher who says something that has a, a ring to it. But as a child in the faith is unaware of the consequences that that will play out in other forms or in other doctrines or as the logical conclusions of that get played out. There can be major consequences for that variety of thinking. Even though the teacher said it and it sounds so catchy, when you run that out, it doesn't follow. Well, we don't fault a child for being big-hearted or empathetic, or eager, nor do we fault Christians for being any of those things. But Paul says he wants us to have those character qualities, but to get beyond it to a maturity that's discerning, to a maturity that's understanding and aware of theological implications that will study us, that will keep us out of trouble. I'm reminded, I was probably about 11 years old. My favorite baseball player was Jose Canseco. Now, it turns out he was cheating, but I didn't know that. He was my favorite player. And I was, I was walking in, in the mall one day, and I saw a t-shirt with his face on it. And I, I asked the guy, I said, do you have any in my size? And he said, yes, I've only got one left. So I went to my dad. He's only got one left, dad. I need, I don't remember how much it was, $20 to buy this shirt. And dad said, he has more than one left. He's probably got a whole box of them in your size. Like every 12-year-old kid in the state wants one. Like he has more. I'm like, no, dad. No. He said it's the last one. I, I'll pay you back, Dad. I'll pay you back. Dad said, well, you will pay me back, but I'm pr I promise you it's not his last one. And Dad and I had this argument. Dad gave me the money. I bought the shirt, paid Dad back, 
One week later, I'm walking through the same place, and guess what I saw? More t-shirts, the exact same t-shirt, in my size. My dad did not let me off the hook. <laughs> I tried to tell you. Well, this is the sort of attitude that Paul is trying to get us past, especially when it comes to spiritual things. We can be, we can be naive. And the risk is that we get swept away by powerful currents. Paul is tapping into an imagery. In fact, on this word, um, uh, this word, tossed to and fro by the waves, that's actually one Greek word. And it's the same Greek word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Isaiah 57, 20. And it says that the evil are never at rest. They're always being tossed to and fro. And Paul's concern is that these Ephesian Christians get swept up in the error of evil people and they get pulled away by forces that are stronger than, than they are. Furthermore, he says there's a great danger. And he uses four words for deception. Four different ways Paul is trying to describe how charlatans will deceive. He says cunning and craftiness and deceit and scheming. There are false teachers. There are charlatans. There are people who claim to be one thing, but they're another. Paul tells Timothy that they come as, they, they come as wolves in sheep's clothing. The wolf doesn't come through the back door of the church with a sign around his neck that says, I'm a wolf, I'm here to eat you. He comes through or she comes through in the cloak of religion, in the cloak of kindness. You cannot look at one of these folks and understand who they are simply by looking at them. They seem so polite and kind. That's part of the con, Paul would say. And he's not pulling any punches. Cunning, craftiness deceit, and scheming. Now, friends, we have to be particularly aware of this. Did you know that Utah leads the nation per capita in Ponzi schemes? Did you know that? In our state, there are more people per capita nationwide who will earn your trust, gather your money, and then run. Most of the time, religion plays a massive role in that scheme. They earn your trust in the way that they look and talk and walk and speak. There's an example I have written down here. 1 Kings chapter 13. There's a prophet, and he's told to go confront the king, Jeroboam, and he does. He's told not to stop, not to eat, not to drink, to go, say his message, and come straight home. An old prophet goes to him and says, an angel spoke to me and told me that you could stop. And he follows that advice. And God takes his life because of it. Here, this man was deceived by a false teacher who had a word that contradicted the word of the Lord. 
You say, how would I know a false teacher if they came to me? Do their words contradict God? Have their words contradicted this book? And if they do, they could say a whole bunch of other stuff that's great. You run. I had a professor that put it like this. Imagine I handed you a huge glass filled with ice-cold water. You would thank me, right, for the water that I'm giving you? But right before you put the water, the glass, to your lips to take a drink of that water, if I said to you, if I said to you, before you drink that, so you know, I put in one drop of poison, would you thank me for the water? Would you be grateful for all the good water that's in that cup? Or would you realize actually what I've handed you is poison? This is how false teachers get in. They say a lot of really good stuff. But then there are some substantial differences with the word of God. And Paul says these are winds and waves and currents that will sweep you away. And Paul would keep you from it. So, how many of you might be sitting to yourselves thinking, how in the world am I going to avoid being swept out to sea against my will? <laughs> this, sounds pretty, this sounds pretty disturbing. Well, here's the answer. Paul says in the next verse, but I want you to be stable. And here's how we arrive at that stability. Rather, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. If you want to be safe from this sort of deception, if you want to be safe from the winds and the waves, if you want to be stable and secure in your Christian life, you are to grow into Christ as you speak truth in love and as you receive speaking of truth in love. And this stability, this stability that the Apostle Paul is talking about is consistent growth. Now, we have, to, we have to get a little specific here, and I want everybody to look at their translations. This is very important. We're going to circle back to this in a little bit and talk about it at length. But for now, this is a very important point. In verse 15, he says, rather, speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. In Greek, this is one word, aletheo. And the word speaking is absent. You could literally translate it like this, rather, truthing in love. You see, in Greek, to truth is a verb. To truth. This prevents a person from speaking truth with their mouth, but doing all the wrong things. Maybe you've heard of it as the do as daddy says, but not as daddy does syndrome. Truthing 
is more about a life commitment to consistency and authenticity and not about mere words. Here's what Paul is saying. Rather, full life truthing, authenticity from the inside out. Now, very often, this comes out in verbal proclamation, and it should. But our lives, our actions, as well as our words, are to be a proclamation of truth in love. Now, Paul means something very specific when he says truthing in love. And we're going to circle back on that in our third point for our applications. But the thing I want us to see, truthing in life in accordance with God's word, this is living consistently and this receives God's commendation. Proverbs 21.3, a man whose life is consistent with truth, God wants to bless And then this word love, to live out this authenticity in love, is a brilliant qualification from the Apostle Paul, because it keeps us from a whole host of pitfalls. I have a bunch of them listed here. How many of you have had somebody tell you the truth, but they shouted it at you? They may have even yelled it at you in the form of curse words. It was hard for you to hear that message of truth because it came through hate. Many of you had that happen to you? Perhaps it even took you years to hear the truth of that rebuke because of the means through which it came to you. Perhaps you've told this to your children who said something hurtful to one of their siblings. When you confront the child that spoke in anger, they say, but it's true. That That doesn't get you off the hook. Because we're to speak the truth in love. We take 1 Corinthians 13, we hope all things, endure all things, believe all things. We think about the person that we're talking to. And how they'll best receive this admonition of truth. We agonize at times over how the person we're about to talk to will receive what they have to say. What you have to say. And very often we, by God's grace and the Spirit's leading, choose to say nothing because we realize it would be impossible to say in love what needs to be said. So we wait. Truthing in love keeps us from self-righteousness. This sort of snide, arrogant, know-it-all, I've got it all figured out, it very often comes out in forms of political talk and so forth. It's this self-righteousness. Truthing in love keeps us from that error. Truthing in love keeps us from being rude and getting ourselves off the hook by saying, well, it's true, I'm just telling you the truth. Well, yes, but you said it. You're being so rude in your presentation of it. 
you didn't listen, you didn't consider the variety of factors, you didn't walk a mile in their shoes before you drew that conclusion, you didn't listen to the varying factors, you didn't listen to their heart, you, you just spoke without thought. It's not true thing in love. There's a sort of over-carefulness in speaking the truth. That's often just a way of sort of displaying uh, self-righteousness in front of others or a Phariseeism. It's overly careful, overly exacting on details, and really all it's meant to do is puff myself up in that I know all the details of it. And we excuse ourselves by saying, well, that's the truth. I'm giving the truth, all the truth. Well, no. Is that motivated by love? Is that for the love of the other person? It prevents us from making truth talk arduous. Wisdom from above is pure and peaceable. It's open to reason. It's reasonable. It's easy to communicate with. It's easily entreated. It wants to be known. It wants to understand. It's easy to get along with. I think the greatest example that we have is this. Let's, let's meditate for just one moment on Jesus. How many times do you think Jesus heard somebody say something hypocritically and he knew it? How many times? Me. A million times? <laughs> uh, Ten million times? How many times do you think Jesus heard somebody tell him a half-truth? Or an excuse? Or, or how many times do you think Jesus heard people say something theologically wrong? Pile all those up and compare them with the number of times Jesus corrected people in what they were saying. Which pile is bigger? This one, of course, right? As evidence of that, people liked being around Jesus. He, they wanted to hear him. They wanted to listen to him. There was a, a quality about him. He only told the truth. He was purely authentic. Yes, he had some harsh words for the Pharisees. Yes, on occasion he corrected people. But he was so approachable and so kind and so forgiving and so gracious that they couldn't hardly talk to him because all the children were constantly swarming around him. This is a man who truthed in love, was it not? This is how we grow. We do this for one another. We truth in love. We speak lovingly, kindly, patiently with one another, showing each other the truth, bearing the truth, listening to the truth. We truth for one another in love. And this promotes growth, consistent and thorough growth. This is comprehensive growth. It says that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ. Now this is a concept we're going to, the headship, we're going to save till next week because that goes a little bit better with the next verse. But it says we're to grow up in every way. And even the word grow has to do with agricultural growth or the building of a, of a home or a structure that has to have all the different parts to it for it to grow well. You don't only build one thing of the house from beginning to end and leave all the rest unattended. The house grows in stages appropriate to its construction. A child doesn't grow in one particular area from start to finish and then in another particular area from start to finish. No, the child matures gradually and wholly, both mentally, physically, emotionally. There's a maturing process that takes place across the the entire scope of that child in measure. And this is how we are to grow as Christians. It's not one isolated area of our character that gets attention. It's not one isolated area of our service that needs attention. There needs to be this comprehensive, overall awareness that we need growth over here and growth over there and growth in this spot. But we're not constantly walking around with our tail between our legs, mournful over where we've last failed because everybody's talking to us in love, encouraging, building up, giving every benefit of the doubt. Yes, helping them, truthing, but moving them forward in a reasonable, positive, loving kind of way. Comprehensive growth, truthing in love, this is what prevents us, this is what keeps us from being driven out to sea, from being taken away by a charlatan, from being delivered into the hands of sinful men. The best stability that you have against error and people who will take you is growing quality relationships inside this body or inside whatever body the Lord leads you to. That will serve you and protect you all your days. Now, I told you we were going to circle back for our final point. Paul's picture of truthing. I want us to go back and revisit this idea of truthing. If truthing in love, if speaking the truth, truthing in love is so important. What did Paul have in mind when he said it? When he wrote truthing in love, what, 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 what is he thinking? Truthing. Well, three sub-points on this final point. Number one, he has the law in mind, as in like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And by that he means simple honesty. You shall not bear false witness. Friends, we can't grow in grace we can't grow in every way in Christ if we're not doing something as simple as just telling the truth and being honest. There was a crisis in the early church. Ananias and Sapphira had 
told a lie. Was the church going to put up with that? Was God going to put up with that? And he said, no. Though we're of grace, honesty, and integrity are a reflection of the God that we serve. And so, clearly, honesty and integrity needs to be a part of our conversation. And Paul, in Deuteronomy 32.24, he's saying that our honesty and our integrity are rooted in the God who is honest. And the God who is always faithful, the God who only tells the truth. There's no shade or shadow in him. He's not trying to spin matters or game us. He's being honest. So Paul, of course, has in mind honesty. But Paul is not leaving it there. Paul would say that's, that's step one. There's much more than that. And so our next sub-point in this one is the Psalms. The Psalms. I was originally going to have you turn to all these passages with me. I'm, I'm not going to do that this time. We're starting to, not over time, but we're starting to run a little short on time, so we won't turn. But I would encourage you to write these down. In Psalm verses 15, 1 and 2, the psalmist David, he asks, who does... Who does God dwell with? Who does God dwell with? And it's the man, Psalm 15, 1 and 2, who speaks truth in his heart. The man who speaks truth in his heart. What does this mean? It's a person who doesn't repeat to himself or herself the same excuse that they know isn't true over and over and over and over again until they start to believe it. The person who speaks truth to himself speaks truth to his heart is a person who when they see another over here act a certain way speaks truth about them in his heart. Let me, give, let me give an example. Let's pretend, I, I did not do this, okay? but let's pretend I showed up yesterday to help Pastor Dom with the pancakes for the men's breakfast. Now, Pastor Dom is the best pancake cook I know. Okay? He's really good at it. Makes delicious pancakes. Next time he invites you over, say, Dom, I don't, want, I don't want spaghetti, I want pancakes. Okay, Being a good Italian host, he will do it. Maybe not, I don't know. But let's say I'm like, I'm like okay, I, I'm, I'm going to do it my way. But Dom's not going to like that. And he'll probably tell me this. And I'm going to respond like that. And then he'll probably say this. And then I'm going to say that. How many of us have had conversations in our minds like that? When the fact is, has Dom said anything to me yet about pancakes? He, Dom couldn't care less as long as a pancake hits the table. You see what I've done? I've lied to myself in my heart about a brother in Christ and created controversy in my own heart. I haven't spoken the truth in my heart. Psalm 15 says that Truth 
the man that God wants to dwell with speaks truth in his heart about himself and about others. Psalm 24.3, he does not regard anything false in his heart. He doesn't lift up false objects of happiness in his heart. He realizes, even though the infomercial told me if I buy this particular golf club, I'm going to be competing on the PGA Tour, it's not true. That, that's, that's not going to make me happy. This over here isn't going to settle me. This over here isn't going to relieve my anxieties. This over here isn't going to relieve my worries. God is my rock. He is my only salvation. It is in him that I trust. Speaking truth in our hearts doesn't lift up other things to the place of God. It keeps God there. Or, and this is the one I really want you to write down. If you haven't written down any of those, Please write this one down. Psalm 51.6. King David has just had a long-term affair. He murdered the husband of his mistress. He then went on a public relations tour where he pretended to do this widow of a war hero a solid by bringing this poor widow into his house. And everybody praised David for his generosity. Never mind the fact that she was a widow because David killed her. Nathan the prophet comes to David, and you know the story. He says, you're the man. You're the man. And David falls apart. In the first five verses of Psalm 51, David is wallowing in the dirt and shame and guilt for what he's done. And in verse 6, he offers the first correction to the crimes that he's committed. Okay? Now I want you to stop right here and think. If you were given first crack at David in the wake of adultery and murder and so forth, what would be your first point of correction? The Spirit of the living God said this. God desires truth in the inward parts. It was the sneaking around. It was the double life. It was the hypocrisy. David's heart was not living out. God. Had he been living it in his heart, his actions would have been solved. Had he had an internal consistency and authenticity, 
the actions will get fixed. Truthing in love would have spared him because truthing in love begins in the heart. It begins with an honesty and integrity within. And so, this is what Paul has in mind when he talks about truthing in love. And then there's one last point in ministry. I have it up here on the screen. I have a 2 Corinthians 4.2, and I put up the PGP. This is the not for sale, not too soon be released, Pastor Greg paraphrase. Okay? If you want to see how I'm translating this, I can defend this translation, but it is a paraphrase. It's not available for public use. You only get it. It's for free. Paul is speaking about his ministry, what it's like to be a pastor who truths in love. And he says this, we spoke out against matters that are shamefully hidden. We spoke out against matters shamefully hidden. Neither scheming nor falsifying the word of God. In other words, we don't turn, twist, shed a little light on the word of God to try to come to our advantage. We don't twist or tamper with the word of God to get what we want. Quite the contrary. It's a strong Greek adversative. It's, on the other hand, quite the contrary. We open ourselves in plain transparency to the conscience of every man before God. Paul says, we're an open book. And you can check up on me. I will submit to your conscience if your conscience is in keeping with the word of God. I'm not trying to hide anything, Paul says. And I'm certainly not twisting anything. And it's in this open, plain, transparent, heart pursuit of truth that the body is stabilized. And so, friends, do you want to be stable? Do you want the person sitting across the room from you to be stable, and settled, and secure? Start truthing in the inward parts in love. And then speak encouraging, loving, kind truth to those around you. Build relationships that are founded and centered on the truth and love of the living God. Genuine, real, authentic relationships. And before you know it, you will find yourself anchored and stable and secure, remembering that truth begins within. We need, at, we need to ask God to change our hearts to true hearts. And that is a request he will always grant. Let's pray.
Father, you've given us uh, our marching orders for stability in this life. And it's probably not what we would have come up with on our own. But I pray, Lord, I pray over this body of people right now. I pray over this church. I pray for myself that we would allow truth to reign within. That we would speak truth to ourselves. That we would honor truth in our hearts. That we would live out truths in an honest way. That we would seek integrity and wholeness first with ourselves. And then we would walk in love toward one another. Not in a rude or imposing kind of a way. But that our pursuit of truth and love toward others would be commendable, honorable, winsome. And that authenticity would breed authenticity. I pray that there would not be a hypocrite among us. but that in open transparency we would encourage one another and love each other, assist one another. And in doing so, may we grow into Christ our head and thus spare us from the winds and the waves that would take us away, sweep us away. Please grace us for these endeavors. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I believe Nathan's going to come and lead us in one last song, and then we'll be dismissed.